Voice Nation. Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is medical device sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of a negative belly-off sign in times of rotary cup arthropathy. I hope you're having a great day. Hope you had a great week. I know I did. You're going to want to hang around today for the interview. It's with Dr. William Levine, Chief of Shoulder Service, say that 10 times fast, at Columbia University. Just an amazing guy, amazing story. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to what he had to say, so you're going to want to stick around for that. So today we're going to kick off our series on character, stuff that you don't typically hear in sales training. What's the definition? The mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. So as we talk about the relationship aspects of medical device, you have to know that it's the foundation of the house that creates the outflow of behaviors, right? And so much of what we deal with oftentimes is symptoms, but at the core of it, the problem was the character. So what we're trying to do is to address the foundation of the house so then stuff flows out of that good foundation and doesn't need a lot of tweaking. It's uh, it's good quality stuff. So as I delved into this, I thought, this is overwhelming. There's so many things you can talk about with characters. So I just decided to focus on things that uh, that I think are critical to this job in particular and are very relevant to what you may be doing today. So let's start our series with... A word that may surprise you, but I think it's ground-level, foundational, basement-level stuff, and that word is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Elon Musk said a week ago, uh, the U.S. is full of complacency and entitlement. Keyword entitlement. Underline that. So what does that have to do with thankfulness? What does either have to do with medical device? Hold my Diet Mountain Dew. Roger Scruton wrote an amazing piece years ago, and it just changed my life uh, about a lot of this very subject. And I'm just going to pick a few lines out of his, uh, his article. Uh, the proper response to a gift is gratitude. People who feel gratitude also wish to express it. The easiest way is to give in one's turn. Gratitude is expressed through giving, right? So far, so good. Makes total sense. But when gifts are replaced by rights, so is gratitude replaced by claims. I'm going to say that again. It's heavy. Uh, When gifts are replaced by rights, so is gratitude replaced by claims. So a little interpretation there. So when the gift is no longer seen as a gift, but something that you have a right to, then any gratitude you may have felt is now replaced by a claim. True story. Many, many, many years ago, infant stages of my career, I worked with a materials coordinator who gave me access to her office to do my paperwork after the cases. And one day she was out of there and I was doing my stuff and I got distracted. I was looking at windows and I'm kind of a computer nerd. So I thought, you know, She's got this weird color scheme on her windows. It must have come from the factory. So I thought, let me clean that up for her and change the theme around. And I was so proud of it. She came in the room when I I finished my paperwork. And I said, look what I did. Doesn't this look awesome? She starts crying. And I'm like, what in the world? It's just a color scheme. She said, my daughter 
just visited me last week, and I did remember that she came in there, and she changed the color on my screen, and it reminded me of her. I absolutely was horrified. Uh, like the cockroach I am, I wanted to crawl out along the baseboard and hope that somebody stepped on me that day. I tried in vain to get it to look like it did when her daughter came in, and I said, what does this look like? And then she starts crying more. I mean, it was probably one of the worst days of my life. Uh, I had to get her flowers and apologize, apologize, apologize. I just, I felt so bad. The only solace was that a couple weeks later, she ended up leaving the hospital. And it was one of those teachable lessons that didn't have long-term implications. But in a way, it does, because I'm still thinking about it to this day. What went wrong? I lost sight of thankfulness. What does thankfulness have to do with being on someone's computer and getting too comfortable with that? Well, it has everything to do with it. Let's look at the definition of thankfulness, aware and appreciative of a benefit, aware and appreciative of a benefit, and then expressive of gratitude. And I'm just going to go ahead and throw in that that would involve an act, you know, right? Maybe saying something, but just as importantly, doing something. So what happened was a failure in the doing something. I was no longer aware and appreciative of the benefit of being a guest in that hospital, and it got replaced by a right. And then that right allowed me, errantly, to make a claim on someone else's space. So that posture of thankfulness and that awareness and appreciation of a benefit should result in the expression and the posture of humility and gratitude within that institution. And that changes a lot of things, doesn't it? Great quotes on the subject, Margaret Mitchell, Gone with the Wind. Life's under no obligation to give us what we expect. We take what we get and are thankful it's no worse than it is. Stephen King, of all people, don't let the sun go down without saying thank you to someone and without admitting to yourself that absolutely no one gets this far alone. And I love this quote by John F. Kennedy. As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. So what does walking in a state of thankfulness do for us as medical device reps? Well, we'll tell you this. It is a choice, and it is not a feeling. It is an act of will. It's not something that's just going to happen organically. It's something we have to make ourselves do a lot of times, especially when things aren't going well, that's when it's really a challenge, right? It's easy to be thankful when you're just getting off stage with your president's club ring in your hand. It's another thing when things are kind of going south and there's no cases going on and this is going on, that's going on. It's a whole different challenge there. Well, one of the boxes that it ticks off is positivity. People that are thankful tend to be more positive people. I worked with a surgeon who, after he had his heart surgery, I would say, it's good to see you, doctor, and he would say, it's good to be seen. Uh, he was very positive because he was just thankful to be alive. And I, I run into people like that all the time. The positive among us are typically the most thankful. And the people that are the most negative around us are the people that clearly don't see all the good things that are going on. And our customers deserve more. Our family members deserve more than that. They need a positive voice in times of angst, right? They need that. So let's just establish that, that making a choice to be thankful 
helps us to be more positive. Number two, it protects us from swapping our thanks for rights. Entitlement, elevation of me, the single most destructive thing that's ever going to come across your career. It helps us to walk in that hospital knowing we have no rights, no claims on anything. We are a guest there. And and acting that way, not calling doctors by their first name in front of the staff or eating their food in the lounge or parking in the physician's lot or uh, leaving your stuff out in the hallway for other people to deal with and the way you treat the staff, the way you treat people in CSS when politics comes up, you know, all these things, it keeps us in a low posture and that keeps us safe. And lastly, just to harken back with what Dr. Crowninshield said about, you know, I've benefited greatly from my experience with so-and-so, right? As we seek to be that positive influence in other people's lives and being that person that other people said they benefited by being around. So whether it's just being in that sphere, whether it's being a mentor, people that are thankful look for opportunities to serve other people because we appreciate what's been done for us. Like Stephen King said, no one got here by themselves. So as we look into a phase where people are starving for mentorship in this job, the people that seem to to gravitate towards it are the people that are the most thankful. So if you want to make a positive impact on other people's life, making that choice to be thankful really affects that. It makes you look forward to giving out of that gratitude. I heard a surgeon say at a meeting many, many years ago, and I never forgot it. It was so profound. Don't ever think things are so bad that they can't get worse. Now, he was saying it in the context of if something's going sideways in a surgery, uh, don't let your guard down and think that this is as bad as it's going to get because it can get worse. So stay on top of it. But I thought that's also a great line for life, isn't it? So when we kind of gravitate towards the negative side and start thinking about how terrible things are, it could get worse than that. Today may be the best day that you're going to have for the next 10 years. You just don't know that. 24 hours can change everything. So do you appreciate that last day is what I'm saying. I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold for me. I could be supine on a vent next week, uh, sharing that vent with someone else. I really don't know. So I'm going to, as an act of will, try to do a better job this week of reflecting before I go into the accounts, before I go into the clinics, before I step out the door, just being thankful for what I do have and what's going right in my life. So this singular act of will provides us a solid foundation, a character foundation for a positive interaction with others and enables us to help others, not as a means to secure some future benefit, but selflessly from a position of gratitude. So speaking of pleasant interactions, our next guest is a globally renowned specialist in upper extremity knee surgery, and sports medicine. He's the chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons, and he holds the Frank Stinchfield Professorship in Orthopedic Surgery and serves as the chief of the orthopedic service at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. William Levine. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, Dr. Levine, you've done some amazing work over the last, I believe, 22 years uh, of your career. Yeah, you didn't have to remind me about that. Uh, <laughs> I had a, I had a, a, um, a patient keep using the phrase the other day, I'm getting long in the tooth. 
<laughs> oh, that's a good phrase. So, yeah. Uh, Dr. Levine, I am so honored to have you on the show. I'm looking forward to having you talk about your current position as chief of uh, shoulder service at one of the most prestigious programs in the world, if not the uh, your work in the NFL, uh, my personal favorite, the NHL, uh, Division One stuff, upper extremity. But first, let's go back to Fargo, North Dakota. What put you on this path? Well, um, it's uh, it's a great story. My my father, who's uh, bless his heart, is ninety one years old and still alive, uh, is a urologist, and my mom is uh, eighty five and also still alive. And they're living in Northern California. So my dad was a, a urologist and he wanted to practice medicine in the United States. And they were from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, which is where I was born. Uh, but at three months of age, uh, apparently they decided that they wanted to move to the States. And so Fargo is four hours due south of Winnipeg. And they wanted to be close. You know, my mom was still young and she had a, a, couple, a bunch of three. Uh, three older brothers and sisters. And so they were young and they wanted to be close to Canada, but my dad wanted to practice medicine in the U S so Fargo was basically the compromise, uh, of where they ended up. So 18 years later, I graduated from high school and then embarked upon my career, but that was, that was home for us. And that was, you know, basically served as our, as our, you know, geographic place to call home and, we didn't know any different, any better, and all four of my brothers and sisters went to public school. But it was kind of a, assumed, even though we never really talked about it, that we would probably all, you know, go elsewhere for our education and probably not come back. <laughs> and that's that is what happened. I mean, you know, I love I love Fargo, and obviously for me, it was it really did serve as a great place to start, um, you know, my life, and and uh, provided a, a great. Um, launching pad for for me and all my brothers and sisters. So it was uh, a great place um, to grow up. So when did you wake up one day and say, you know, I want to be a doctor? There's a a, a big shopping mall in Fargo that that came up in uh, back when I was a kid, and you know we would go there on weekends and um, and hang out and whatnot with my parents. And you know my dad would get stopped like I don't know five, six, seven times by all of these grateful patients. And, um, you know, Fargo isn't that small, but it's small enough. It was about 60, 65,000 people when we, when I was growing up, it's much larger now. Uh, but I just saw the, um, the admiration and, and the, um, uh, and the respect that, that my father had from these folks who were, you know, utter strangers. And it was obviously that very impactful to me, uh, as a kid. And so I, when I went to Stanford uh, for college, I, I had already decided I wanted to be a doctor. My older brother and one of my two older sisters had already uh, chosen a path in medicine as well. And uh, so I was pretty sure, you know, when I arrived at Stanford as an 18-year-old that, that I was going to go into medicine. And I really was attracted to sports medicine um, specifically because of my uh, sports. You know, I was a hockey player in North Dakota, which of course you have to be by birthright. Yes. Uh, and uh, I was a tennis player. So those were my two sports. And, and I, I had an opportunity to spend some time with the, the team physician at Stanford during the um, summer between between my freshman and sophomore years. And that kind of confirmed it for me that, that if I ever had the chance to get into medicine and get into orthopedics, that I definitely wanted to have sports medicine as a major component of what I would do. Uh, and then I also added an additional 
a component of shoulder surgery specifically, which was a, a passion that I kind of found later in, in my path. In 2011, before we get too far away from Fargo, you were inducted into your high school Hall of Fame. I got to know, what was that all about? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty wild. Um, uh, they have a, you know, they have a, a Hall of Fame at Fargo South High School, and and um, I was honored to uh, be selected. And I went back for the ceremony, and I hadn't been back in some time. And you know, went to the school, and actually, you know, met with some of the current students, and we went to the football game, and we were introduced at halftime, and. Uh, you know, it was really a, an incredible thrill. You know, who, whoever thinks you're going to be inducted into a Hall of Fame, and, uh, let alone at your at your high school. So that was uh, really a, a great honor, honestly. Being inducted into the top U.S. Uh, shoulder surgeons uh, several times, the top one percent of orthopedic surgeons. Did you set out to be that doctor, or did it just kind of happen organically as you you worked your way through the, your career? You know, I, I think Kevin, like all of us, we we. You don't make those kinds of, of I, I don't think you make the, the goal that you're going to, you know, be that you're not, I'm not going to say, oh, geez, I'm going to be the top 1%. Uh, but, you know, I grew up with a, in a family where my parents were committed to our education. Uh, they didn't push us at all. In fact, it was really self-motivated for all five of us. Uh, but, you know, three doctors, a lawyer, one in business, they um, obviously were very proud of of their children. And it was just one of those things that was just, you know, it's always been a self. I was the fourth of the five kids. I was given tremendous responsibility by my parents. And I've described it to my kids that they gave me the rope and said, don't hang yourself. And it was, you know, an incredible act of, uh, of, of probably, um, I don't know if it was naive or not, uh, but they gave me this, all this responsibility. And I just felt like I didn't want to screw that up. And so that kind of always motivated me. And I've always, you know, kind of pushed myself to, to try to achieve the, whatever the highest possible thing I could to do. So I guess that it, it goes back to my upbringing and just goes back to the, to the, the way I've always uh, kind of self motivated, whether it was in tennis or hockey or school uh, and now orthopedics, shoulder surgery, sports medicine, and, and the other things that I do in, in my career. Years ago, I had the uh, the honor of meeting uh, Dr. Louis Biliani, just a wonderful, a wonderful man, and just a very talented surgeon. I was just curious, what was it like to to work alongside some of the giants? Well, Louis, of course, is was the um, you know that's why I am where I am. Uh, so it, all, all all of the of the gratitude and appreciation and thanks in the world goes to Dr. Biliani. So you know in uh, in 1994, I'm a fourth-year resident at Tufts in, in Boston, and I have decided that I want to do a shoulder fellowship. And in those days, there were there were it's much different than today, where we now have about 45 or 46 uh, shoulder fellowship positions in the country, uh, somewhere around 29 to 30 programs. Back then, there were four programs. There was Columbia. Uh, there was University of Washington. Uh, there was um, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, there was uh, University of Texas San Antonio uh, with some of the huge giants in the field of shoulder surgery. And so I was, uh, you know, privileged to interview with all these different uh, guys that I, you know, read about and heard about. And of course, it was a different era. You didn't have the Internet quite as prominent as today. So it was, you know, amazing to meet them. 
And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to, uh, to be offered the, uh, the shoulder fellowship at Columbia. And, you know, Columbia really is the place where shoulder surgery started. Dr. Neer is regarded as the patriarch of shoulder surgery, and he started the first shoulder service and the first shoulder fellowship uh, back in 1977. Right. And Dr. Biliani was his first fellow. So, you know, to have Dr. Neer be the first chief of the shoulder service and then Dr. Biliani be the second chief of the shoulder service and then for me to become the third chief of the shoulder service, uh, obviously I could never in a million years have uh, envisioned that that would uh, end up happening. And then ultimately, Dr. Biliani, who became the chair of the department at Columbia in 1997, uh, recruited me back and I was his first faculty recruit uh, in 1998. And so I've been here ever since. And then in 2014, I succeeded Dr. Biliani uh, in becoming the 10th chairman of our department in the 156 year history of the um, of this program. Wow, what an honor. I, I believe that you guys have put over 100 fellows uh, out in the field you know, speaking of responsibility, use that word earlier. Uh, what challenges uh, do you see training uh, orthopedic surgeons in today's environment? Yeah, Kevin, that's a, a fantastic question. And in fact, we um, we have a, a symposium that we're going to address that very topic at our um, American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons annual virtual meeting in October. Uh, I'm I'm honored to be the 36th president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons right now. And my meeting was supposed to be in New York, October 2nd and 3rd. And of course, we had to convert it to virtual. But that's one of the symposium that we uh, and topics that I chose was, uh, what do you do with uh, trying to train fellows and residents in the current um, era. And the reason that that's important to explore is if you think about resident fellow uh, education, as you know very well being in the operating room, pretty much every force that is out there right now goes against letting residents and fellows operate. You know, you have you have throughput issues, you have societal issues, you have patient issues, you have financial issues. And so to be a surgeon educator, I maintain, and it's one of the favorite talks I give when I am invited to other programs, you know, as a visiting professor or whatnot, uh, I maintain there's never been a more challenging time to be a surgeon educator. Never. And uh, so you have to have you have to have incredible patience, which some days I'm better than others. Honestly, you have to have um, you basically have to be able to disregard a lot of those those forces that are pushing on you to not train these these young men and women because they're going to be the next generation. And if they don't get their reps now, then when the heck are they going to get them? And, and how are they going to get them? Because if they get them without supervision and without your expertise, then that's when bad habits are going to develop or when poor surgical techniques are going to occur. And then you're going to see, you know, a huge rise in complications. And, and that's the balancing act that we have, I think, for all of us in trying to sort out that balance between, you know, letting them do uh, as much as they can within their comfort level under your supervision, when you can redirect things, if things aren't going perfectly the way you want them, versus doing the whole case yourself, having it be an observership, which is what the European model has traditionally been, and then saying, go figure it out on your own for the next five years. 
which is kind of a frightening thing if you think about it. If I'm Joe society, uh, I get why you're saying I don't want the resident fellow to do anything. But when do you want them to do something? You know, and when and when they need to do something on you, don't you want them to have had experience and reps beforehand? So it's it's a tough balancing act. There's no question about it. Use the word supervision, and I think a close cousin of supervision is mentorship, and I know that's a real passion of yours. Uh, tell me your thoughts on that and, and how that relates to to working with uh, the group of surgeons you have there. Yeah, mentorship is something, Kevin, that's been, you know, again, one of those things that's driven me from – it goes way back, and, and I, I, I always go back to Case Western Reserve Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, I was a first-year medical student, and I knew I wanted to do orthopedic surgery. And if you knew you wanted to do orthopedic surgery at Case Western, then that meant you had to meet Peter Scholes. And Dr. Scholes was a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, uh, unbelievable mentor, unbelievable advocate. And if you wanted to get into ortho and you did your job, then he was going to do whatever he could in his power to get everybody from Case to match. So I did my first uh, research project with Dr. Scholes. Uh, it was a great project. There's a, a collection called the Hammond Todd Collection, Kevin, in Cleveland. It's held at the Natural History Museum, and they have 2,974 skeletons in these uh, in these drawers that have been assembled over you know incredible uh, number of years. And you want, might wonder why I remember that number, uh, Kevin. That's because I looked through every one of those damn uh, boxes uh, for something called a tarsal coalition, which is a, you know, congenital fusion between the uh, talus and the calcaneus. And uh, so that was one of my first research projects that I ever did. And that was with Dr. Scholes. And that kind of set me on my path to uh, where I am today. And I always give credit to, to Peter Scholes for his influence and role. And I always thought, even back then as a student, if I ever had the opportunity to pay forward what he had done for me, that that's what I would like to do. And so I have been mentoring um, high school students, college students, medical students, residents, fellows, and young faculty uh, ever since. And I think mentorship is one, it's a void we have in medicine in general, but in orthopedics specifically, uh, it's a really significant void that that exists. And so about a year and a half ago, I get a cold call from a guy named Tabs Ayer. Uh, Dr. Ayer is a foot and ankle surgeon at the University of Miami. And he and two of his good friends from training, um, Matt Vericalo and um, John Kaplan, had formed a group called OrthoMentor. Uh, and so they had they had a website, they had a, a very heavy social media presence on Instagram, uh, less so on Twitter. Um, and they called me out of the blue. Tabs called me and um, he he said, hey, you know, I know about everything you do in, in mentorship and how passionate you are about it. And would you consider, you know, joining forces with us? And I, I jokingly tell everybody they just needed somebody with gray hair. Uh, because they were a bunch of young whippersnappers. So I, I kind of checked them out and I, I saw what they were doing and they really were f uh, filling a void that uh, was was out there. So we started doing some stuff together. And then when the pandemic hit, this is really amazing. So pandemic hits and we were talking, Tabs and I were talking one night and we said, you know, these fourth year medical students that are going to be applying in orthopedics this year, 
and of course every other subspecialty, but ortho specific for us, are not going to be able to do their normal away rotations. You know, for your listeners, um, they they may or may not know, but you know, if you're going into orthopedics, you do your uh, a uh, a rotation in your home medical school where you try to you know you basically act. It's called an acting internship or a sub internship where for one month you are on the orthopedic service. You're trying to impress them and you're trying to see if this is a place that you might want to be a resident. And in addition to your home program, you you're going to do that same kind of rotation at two or three. Uh, external places that you have selected that might be the top of your list. Maybe you're going to come to Columbia. Maybe you're going to go to UPenn. Maybe you're going to go to uh, you know Wayne State, wherever it might be. Well, the pandemic basically obliterated all of those away rotations this year. So you had all these fourth-year students who are already paranoid that they might not be able to match in ortho uh, and every other subspecialty for that matter. So we decided to start doing some webinars. Um, and dealing with some of these issues, like, you know, what are you going to do since you can't do your away sub-buys? How do you show a program you're interested? What are programs looking for in applicants this year? How are we going to do all of this virtually and so on? So we've done a series of five webinars uh, with different faculties, always with some of the ortho mentor guys and myself, and then different program directors or other orthopedic surgeons from around the country. And if you can imagine, Kevin, we did a webinar and had 5,200 people uh, register and 3,200 people live for the webinar, which I've never heard of that many people. But but it just the reason I kind of highlight that for you and your listeners is that it kind of shows you that that is the void out there. There is such a desire and thirst for mentorship uh, that we just hit the the we hit the right button at the right time, and we had students and program directors and faculty and deans that were emailing us and giving us feedback about it. So it was it's really been pretty amazing uh, to see how that's that's impacted people. And you know, I get emails from medical students from around the country. You know, can you look at my application and please tell me if you think I'm competitive for orthopedics or for whatever. And I actually have students who ask me about other specialties and I'm like, listen, I, I, I can barely handle what I'm doing. I certainly can't, you know, go into the other specialties, but, uh, but it's just, it does show uh, what an incredible uh, lack of, of mentorship that I think exists out there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, life's hard as it is, even when everything's going right. And just having people that can walk through this thing with you uh, professionally and personally to help avoid landmines and to show you where the, the traps are and where to go, where not to go. That, that stuff is priceless. Yeah. Absolutely priceless. Um, I want to talk a little shop. When you said NHL, I mean, I just got my attention. How do you treat hockey players uh, when all of their injuries seem to be undisclosed upper body? <laughs> <laughs> I never know. I never know what happened to anybody. It's always a secret. yeah. That's that's funny, isn't it? That's the way the NHL works. But yeah. So I've been working with the NHL uh, for many years. As uh, they have a great um, uh, program that they uh, uh, that the NHL Players Association um, uh, worked out with the with the teams, and it's a second opinion program. So you know, any player that gets injured at any time uh, can ask for a second opinion from a. Uh, a non-team affiliated, but NHLPA approved uh, surgeon. Uh, so you have to be vetted. You have, you have to be invited and then vetted. And 
And if you want to participate, it's great. If you don't, no problem. And, um, and so you'll get, you know, any number of players per year that will, um, you know, if they're, especially if they're in the New York area or sometimes players from other teams, from other uh, uh, states or from other countries occasionally uh, will uh, ask to, uh, to come and, and get examined and, and get a second opinion. And usually, you know, it's not usually because of distrust of the team positions. Uh, NHL, especially, um, uh, although the money, as the money has gotten bigger and, and more like the other sports, that does tend to influence things. But in general, they have a good relationship with their team positions, and they're often just looking to confirm what's been told to them. For me, it's a low-stress uh, interaction because you know, I have no vested interest in telling them anything other than, you know, this is what what you have. Here are your treatment options and here are some recommendations. And then I convey that information back to the team and and uh, and then they take it from there. I've always wondered, how do you balance out the needs of the team with the needs of the player? Right. Well, it's it's hard. I mean, you know, I've 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 been the head team physician at Columbia University for 21 years and I've always maintained that being an Ivy League team physician is about as pure sports medicine as it gets. Um, you know, obviously, very rarely do we have people going to the next level, but we have occasion. You know, we get the occasional one every couple of years. Um, and uh, you know, Josh Martin is uh, uh, was with the Jets and uh, was a good friend, and and uh, taking care of him for a long time. But in general, you're taking care of student athletes whose main goals are to you know be a Columbia student. Uh, they're passionate about their athletics. Don't get me wrong, and they have to they practice as much as being at Texas or Notre Dame or or Alabama. But academics obviously is critically important. So when I'm a team, the reason I think it's it's pure sports medicine is if I tell a guy that they have a meniscal tear and that they need to have the meniscus repaired, and that that's going to be a longer rehab, the answer is do what you got to do, doc. As opposed to if, if, if I'm at another place where that three-month or four-month delay uh, and increased rehab may be the difference between you know millions of dollars, then you may be forced to do something that you're not sure is medically the, in their best interest, but is something that they're asking you to do because they can't afford the longer rehab. And the other part of it is that, you know, in all my years being here at Columbia, I have never had one of our head coaches, uh, you know, tell me how to practice medicine or influence how I practice medicine uh, or suggest how I practice medicine. Uh, I, I joke, you know, I have a good relationship. I've been here a long time with all these coaches and, you know, I, I tell them, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to give you any new plays to implement. And you stay out of the training room and the operating room and, and influencing what we're doing. We're going to let you know. And, you know, and they're, and they're great about it. Because really, what does a coach want to know at the end of the day? Is the player in or out? And if they're out, I've got to go to plan B. And if they're in, okay, I, I got my plan. And, and so that's, that's kind of how it boils down. A couple procedural questions. Uh, the percentages vary depending on what study you're looking at, so I'm not going to throw out a number as definitive, but I know that the failure rate of uh, rotator cuff repair is still something that people are noticing. And I've seen a lot of things brought out onto the market to hopefully address it. We've seen rotator cuff patches. We've seen 
uh, attempts at bone marrow aspirate concentrate. I've seen some people fool around with that stuff. Uh, I've heard of biological scaffolds out there being bandied about. What What is your thoughts on that? Where are we right now in that procedure? Is there anything that you guys are doing that maybe a surgeon listening is going, oh, I, you know, that that's what I need to incorporate to, to help my failure rate in this procedure? Yeah, so um, uh, this has been one of my, you know, holy grail searches, uh, Kevin, for the better part of my entire professional career. I am uh, blessed at Columbia to to be associated with uh, one of the world's leading biomedical engineering departments. And so as such, we have great collaboration with the BME uh, team at, at the uh, downtown campus and then the orthopedic surgeons in my department. And then I brought Steve Thermopolis uh, here, who is a one of the world's leading tissue engineers, and he runs our laboratory in our department. So he also has a dual appointment with the BME group. So I started working with a uh, incredible uh, tissue engineer named uh, Helen Liu. Uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say how many years ago, but a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, and what Helen's expertise is, she does nanofiber scaffolds that are electro spun. And um, basically, uh, these are scaffolds that are what are called biomimetic, which means that they mimic the biologic environment of whatever you're trying to fix. So what is the, bo- the, the bottom line problem? We have an, a degenerative, avascular, acellular tendon that we're trying to repair to a acellular osteoporotic bone. So if you were going to select a worse system to try to get something to heal it, the only thing you could probably do is put a bunch of pus in that and <laughs> and have the infection because at baseline value there's really not much worse as far as trying to get soft tissue to bone healing and that's why the rotator cuff repair success rate is all over the map as you suggested you know if you take a small single tendon tear uh, in a younger patient with uh, with good bone and good tissue quality, yeah, we have really high success rates, no question. But you take this 70-year-old with a massive uh, tear, I just operated on two of them uh, earlier today, uh, Kevin, uh, and yeah, they were acute tears, which is why we operated. They didn't have a lot of muscle atrophy on MRI, which is why we operated. But even so, you know, I'm in there going, man, is this going to be enough? And so we have solved the biomechanical problems because we can do double rows and triple rows and quadruple rows and strong sutures and all that stuff. So it's not a biomechanical problem by far. It's a biological problem. And so you're right. There have been about 100 different things that have been implemented. So what have I been working on? Well, we've been working on uh, this nanofiber scaffold. Uh, and one of the things that I said 18 years ago is all the scaffolds at the time and all the patches at the time were being put on top of the tendon. So you put the tendon to the bone and you put something on the tendon. And I just asked a simple question, like the weak link is not sitting on top of the tendon. The weak link is between the tendon and the bone. So why don't we develop, why don't we design something that enhances that healing of the tendon to bone and then bioabsorbs, resorbs and is gone, but you've got, you've increased the healing. If you look at the histology of a rotator cuff repair, you know what you see, Kevin? If you look under the microscope, you see scar tissue. You don't see the recapitulation of the normal tendon to bone interface, which is this really elegant attachment site that has four different layers. And you never see that even in, even in a healed 
scenarios. So even at our best, all we do is get scar tissue formation. So that was kind of my premise is what could we do? And so I met Helen, I told her she was making these nanofiber scaffolds. And I was like, this is perfect because now instead of putting this thing as an onlay on top of the tendon, we can do it as an inlay between the tendon and the bone and do the same rotator cuff repair that you normally would have done. Only we're going to put this thing, you know, this scaffold between the two and let the scaffold do its job. And the way I describe it at the cellular level, it's like the um, uh, coming into a land at, at uh, O'Hare Airport. And when those uh, runway lights are on, that's that tells the cells where to align. So what we've done with these scaffolds is we've done a, about 100 different experiments and have published a lot of peer-reviewed literature over the years. But basically what, what she can do, what Helen does, she can make an aligned scaffold uh, where the fibers are aligned like that uh, runway, like the runway lights, or an unaligned scaffold where the, the, the scaffold's going all over the place. And what we've shown in a series of uh, first in vitro and then ultimately in vivo studies is when we use an aligned scaffold with a very specific composite of the type of scaffold we're using, uh, we can get the, the fibroblasts on the one side, the tendon, and the osteoblasts on the bone side to align and heal. And we've shown in both small animal studies with rats and then large animal studies with sheep, where we did all our work in Colorado, we've shown that the histology not only shows that the tendon has healed to the bone, but it doesn't look like the typical fibrovascular scar blob that normally would occur. It looks like the normal tendon to bone insertion. So that was remarkable, obviously. And and we've known this for a long time. The hard part about doing um, innovation, especially when you're at an academic medical center, is it can be like a glacier pace. And so we're at the point now where we have formed a company we're ready to go commercial. We're ready to do humans trials, but it's been way longer than I ever wanted. As a surgeon, you know this this doesn't cut it. But as a science, you know, from the science standpoint, we had to dot our eyes and cross our t's and do all this work. But but we're you know we're at that point where I totally believe in it. I know it works. Um, I don't know that it works in humans yet because we haven't done it, but it's, it's worked unlike anything else on the marketplace at the animal study at the animal level. Uh, so we, I am very passionate and excited about it. And hopefully before my career's over, I'll be able to put it into patients. Reverse shoulders. So I remember when the first reverse shoulder ever showed up on the radar at, uh, at my hospitals and, it took a while to catch on, but now it's just ubiquitous. I see a lot of people uh, doing this procedure, and I was just curious. We've had some time now to to look at uh, what worked, how tight we need to put them in, and you know different different things. Is there any two or three things if you were sharing with a community surgeon of what you've learned from the reverse experience that that you would say you know you need to be focused on these two or three things? that we've learned over the years of doing these? Yeah, I, I, I think that there's, there are some generalities that I think are important. You know, when, when, um, when the reverse was first FDA approved in the, in North America, um, the history is actually pretty interesting for your learner, for your listeners. It's one of the first times, if not the first time that the FDA ever approved a, um, a prosthesis without, um, doing a trial in North America. 
the the French had done such a meticulous multi-center study with the entire country with every implant documented because Tournier at the time basically was the only implant in in all of France. So they they their company was brilliant. They they documented everything and every single surgeon was using the same implant. So that information was presented to the FDA and the FDA ended up approving it without having us do a North American trial. It was pretty remarkable. So uh, the, the, the reverse comes to us in 2003. And of course, the first design was just like Grimont had designed it, a medialized and inferiorized base plate glenosphere construct. Now, the French were wonderful about sharing everything with us. They forgot to share the scapular notching problem with us. <laughs> and so the dirty little secret that they knew about was that these things were notching at like 80 and 90 percent of the time if you if you had it in long right. enough, uh, enough so that not long after the reverse came, <laughs> came the scapular notching classification system by Servo. <laughs> so, so uh, I always laugh about that. So uh, um, I'm glad that, that it didn't, I guess it would have been nice if it came before, but anyway, so, so everything had to be medial, 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 medial. It had to be inferior and distal, and then we had the inferior, and then we had to inferiorly tilt the glenosphere because of the scapula notching issue. And you had this guy named Mark Frankel in Tampa, uh, who is the uh, president elect for American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons, a good friend of mine, and we've had a great time on our pre the presidential line uh, doing some you know really good work for ASCS. And Mark uh, didn't believe that the medialized design was the way to go. And despite the decades of failures of lateralized designs, which you can look in, you know, in the history books and see like a million different designs that were absolutely horrific and were popping out and loosening in the, the recovery room, practically. Mark was one of these guys who he did not take dogma uh, as as gospel. And he kind of, you know, did it on his own. And he had a small company, worked with a small company at the time. And, you know, true perseverance. And it's a great story for another day. But, you know, he, he kind of, he never would have been able to get this prosthesis through today with the way the FDA is. But he kept persevering. He had three or four iterations that failed. But he, would, he thought he was onto something. And by about the fifth iteration, uh, he nailed it. And it was a lateralized design. It was a totally different neck shaft angle. It was a totally different version. It was kind of like doing a regular anatomic shoulder replacement, not the reverse that the French had taught us so well. And here we are in 2020, and you have Pascal Boileau, uh, one of the you know main French surgeons who've been extremely influential in, in bringing so many great innovations to the world. Uh, but but Pascal is doing what he calls the bio RSA. Uh, and so he takes a bone graft when he cuts his humeral head, a little donut goes onto the, the uh, peg of the base plate. And guess what the base plate does? It lateralizes it. Um, and others are now following suit. And so Mark Frankel really has been vindicated uh, and he was really ostracized early in his career. People said he was crazy and that he was, you know, didn't know what he's talking about and it had to be medialized and they were going to all fail. And lo and behold, Mark showed that by lateralizing the base plate glenosphere construct, uh, it allows the middle and posterior deltoids to be better tensioned and you can actually get external rotation.
Right. And that was one of the biggest problems with the medialized designs is they'd do great with forward elevation, but you know, you couldn't get them to actually rotate much at all. And if they had a hornblower sign beforehand, meaning that they had, you know, a obligate interrotation lag, then those patients were really not happy, even though they could forward elevate their, the, their arm or, or elbow was kind of flopping. So you'd have to do a latissimus transfer or something else to try to help that, that uh, cohort. So the first thing is that, uh, you know, don't always believe what, what you're told. And, and it's, I think, always good to ask questions. Right. Uh, so a, a lateralized um, design of any, any vendor now has some variant therein to do that is something that you should consider. Uh, the second thing is that you have to remember if you're inferiorizing and distalizing uh, you're going to cause brachial plexus problems. And unfortunately, what I see a lot of is brachial plexus problems from surgeons who do six to 10 a year. Um, and I think that they, you know, they're told to put it inferior on the glenoid to because of scapular notching, then they put a big glenosphere on and then they, they end up distalizing. And you see a couple of things, right? You see that the shoulder doesn't look anatomic. So patients don't particularly like the way it looks cosmetically. And you start to worry about the neurologic uh, component of that. So be very careful if you if you find yourself super distalizing, super inferiorizing um, uh, in your patients, because that that's probably not going to be a, a good outcome. And then the last thing that is is still remains a controversy, I think, is what to do with the subscapularis. Um, and you know, initially, because of the medialized designs and inferiorizing and distalizing, you couldn't fix the subscap. It wasn't even close. It wasn't in the right zip. The lesser tuberosity was no longer in the right zip code. Uh, and so we said, well, you don't have to fix the subscap. And it was really, we, we can't fix the subscap. So we're going to say you don't have to. And it didn't, you know, I have to say I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds uh, back in those days without ever fixing a subscap. And it, it didn't really seem to be a problem. But like anything else, if you have a functional subscap and you can get it to, to heal, you're probably better off. And so when you do a more anatomic type reverse these days uh, with, uh, you know, less inferior, less distal, less medial, uh, you can actually fix the subscap. And I, I do think it probably helps with stability. And, and I'm sure it's going to lead to some level of functional improvement uh, when we do our longer term follow up for those patients. That's great stuff. I saw a... a paper out the other day, a surgeon talking about an inlay glenoid design that he had come up with, and it uh, reminded me of the old days of insetting a patella. I was just curious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, tell me what you think about that. Is that a, is that a good concept on paper? Well, it's it's interesting. We have we have used that in our lab only, you know, for my fellows and residents. We Whenever a, a company says, hey, Dr. Dr. Levine, would you would you like to use this? I'm like, first of all, no, not in a patient because I've never used it. But second of all, if you're interested in, in education, uh, then we'd love to. We'd love to you know, sponsor a lab and let's go play with it and see what it looks like. So we have used it in the laboratory. Uh, I think it might have a role uh, in a, in a Walsh C glenoid, for example, with uh, it, that you don't want to do a reverse in, and you just want to do something. Uh, and some of uh, Bob Tajan and Jay Keener, two uh, two great shoulder surgeons in uh, in Salt Lake and and St. Louis, respectively, I know have used that particular device in that kind of setting. Um, uh, so I have not found the the case yet where I have used it. Um, but I, it's a very clever design. It's very straightforward. Uh, it was designed well. The instrumentation is is outstanding. 
uh, but I just haven't used it clinically yet. What do you think about stemless shoulders? Oh, uh, you know, I think it's like anything else. Um, there, there's a time and a place. Um, I, I, I think it's solving a problem that didn't really exist. Um, and the short stems may, may turn out to not be the best solution. You know, it's a little bit like going from open cuff repair to mini open cuff repair to arthroscopic cuff repair. The mini open uh, genre was probably the worst of the three. You were better off doing open or arthroscopic. And going from long stem to short stem to no stem, there is, you know, some concern about the short stems. There's a lot of osteolysis of the medial calcar, even with design changes. Arthrex and Tournier both have been hit pretty hard with that. Um, so I'm not sure. Uh, I use the, the, uh, catalyst, which is, a was designed by one of my former fellows, uh, Steve Goldberg down in Naples, uh, is truly a, a, um, uh, transformative, uh, technology, disruptive technology. It's unlike anything else on the market. Uh, it's basically, um, the concept is similar to a total knee replacement. Uh, so it's chamfer cuts on the humerus. It's not taking the head of the humerus off and then trying to redesign the center of rotation. Uh, it's some elegant um, uh, uh, cutting jigs to actually um, resate, resurface the uh, the humerus. Um, and then I use both Zimmer and Wright Medical. Both have a, a stemless um, uh, arthroplasty that I use both of. Uh, I was in a couple elbow replacements recently, and I thought, wow, a run. Back in the old days, I seem to have seen a lot of those, a lot of Coonrad Morris going on out there. You just, just oh, don't yeah. see that many elbow replacements anymore. Um, and the, the doctor I was talking to, we were wondering why that is, and I thought, well, I've, I've got to ask you that question. Well, the, the reason most commonly given for that are the, dis- the disease-altering medications that our rheumatology colleagues now have. Mm-hmm for, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, because of course, you know, uh, osteoarthritis, the elbow happens usually in a post-traumatic setting, but even then those patients, you know, it's amazing. You can see some horrific looking, uh, uh, x-rays, Kevin, and patients aren't doing that badly and don't ever need anything really done surgically to them. But rheumatoid arthritis, of the elbow is devastating. And so those are the patients that would just have profound, you know, because of the synovitis being so, so much a part of the inflammatory arthritis as opposed to just being the cartilage loss in osteo. Uh, but the disease altering drugs have, have, you know, they haven't eradicated it, but boy, have they knocked, you know, knocked it way down. So we just don't see those patients. We do not see patients coming in, uh, needing total elbows, uh, very frequently. These days, we're getting a lot of buzz in our world about robotics on the knee side, the hip side. And one thing that I'm seeing more and more in the shoulder world is uh, the integration of MRI CT based guides to, to help with pin placement and uh, screw location on the reverse. I just wonder what your thoughts were on this, uh, this technology. Well, I think there's been a dramatic change uh, to without question. I mean, you know, we, we get CT scans on every single shoulder arthroplasty patient and preoperatively plan uh, and use one of the commercially available software programs. There's now about 10 of them. So, you know, every company seems to have one now. Um, And I think overall, it's a great thing. It's been a great advance for us um, as a field. You know, if you do 100, 150, 200 shoulder replacements a year, uh, for the majority of cases, is it really necessary that you did all of that? Probably not. But 
it still is good and and it's kind of fun you know you can play with the different implants you can play with different sizes you can kind of get your you know as as we think about it as surgeons you can preoperatively um do your rehearsal of your procedure before you actually do the real surgery so there's something very powerful about that um for the most part i have not uh used the patient specific information uh, instrumentation the psi uh if you have a extraordinary revision setting with severe bone loss, um, then yeah, then I'm going to use one of the systems that are commercially available where, you know, you can't go in intraoperatively and figure out what any normal anatomy is. Um, So some of the systems, um, and Zimmer Biomet is one, has their vault reconstruction system. And so for severe glenoid bone loss, uh, it's a godsend because um, you don't know where the where the bones are to even be able to put screws in, and then you you get the CT scan and you get the the model made, and the real implant is exactly like the model, and you can see exactly where the screw holes are, and they're going to put you exactly where the bone is as long as you follow your pre-op plan. So it has changed um, dramatically our ability to do those kinds of you know, extraordinary revision set setting. In the primary setting, primary anatomic, primary reverse, uh, I don't think you need uh, patient-specific inf- instrumentation. Um, but there are some surgeons who would disagree with me and say, yeah, no, I think you're wrong and you should do it even in those cases. That You know, it, it brings in the cost. It brings in the time uh, and efficiency standpoint. Uh, but, you know, it, it's something to, to think about. Um, exact Tech is a, a company that's really done some amazing work um, in their interoperative uh, monitoring. Uh, and so you do your pre-op uh, CT scan and then you uh, interoperatively put a, a sensor into the coracoid process. You register the shoulder. Uh, and then in real time, when you are drilling in real time, you are looking up on the monitor and seeing exactly where your drill is going and exactly where your screws are going. It is remarkable technology. Uh, I have not used it in real life. I've used it, uh, again, in the cadaver setting. Um, but, uh, certainly, uh, you know, is that something we're going to need to do in the future or will be doing, uh, remains to be seen, but, uh, it's, it's amazing to see how far the technology has come in, in our field. I have to ask you this because one of the Columbia fellows, uh, asked me to ask you this. What are your thoughts on these price controls going on in the systems now, uh, with vendor consolidation and, uh, he, he just wanted to ask your thoughts on that, you know, when they're being told you have to use this system. And, and you know, a lot of systems have similarities, but there is a, a feel and a comfort level. And uh, just wondering if you had any any thoughts on that. Like everything, Kevin, I think we have to look at it from from who are the constituents that are, are going to be um, involved with that. So from a hospital procurement standpoint, if I'm wearing that hat, they want they don't want to have incredible variability in cost and so if zimmer's got a reverse that's coming in at let's just say $9000 and djo's got one coming in at $6000 then that doesn't look very good because at the end of the day both of their products are fairly equivalent with respect to patient reported outcomes and uh, ease of use as a surgeon etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, 
So the way I've handled it and, you know, I'm the worst. And the other the other part about about hospital systems, as you know, is if you have two systems and your scrub techs know every system and the teams know the systems, then you improve efficiency, you improve throughput, you improve outcomes, you improve quality and you also increase the number of cases you can do in a day. It's been shown a million times. Uh, if you use seven different systems and you don't have a team that knows what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera, then that can lead to problems on the other side. But I'll, that being said, I am a definite outlier in this on this topic. And the reason for that is that um, uh, last Wednesday I did um, my typical two room eight case day. We're kind of almost back to pre-COVID numbers, which is nice. And I did of the eight cases, five were shoulder arthroplasties and then three um, uh, other scopes or what have you. Of the five arthroplasties I did, Kevin, I did a catalyst. I did a Zimmer. I did a right medical. I did a DJO and I did another, um, I think, two DJOs that day. So I used four different companies. And the reason I use four different companies is that my bias is that I do not believe that one company has the answer for every patient and every pathology that I that you can encounter. And I think that there are some prostheses that are very um, specific for certain pathologies. And so I'm blessed to be able to continue to do that in my system. And so when I'll give you a perfect example, when DJO came to me and said they wanted me to try uh, Dr. Frankel's prosthesis, I said, I don't get involved with any discussion about pricing. And all I do say uh, to procurement is that if I think that there's a prosthesis that I'd like to use because I think a patient will benefit from it, then I tell the company that the only thing I'm going to say is you got to match the current costs from the other vendors. And if you do that, then there's a pretty good chance that I'll be able to use it. But if you don't and you're way over, then I probably won't be able to use it. So that to me is about the best I can do right now in 2020. And, you know, I meet with our procurement team as our chairman, as chairman of the department and the hip and knee guys. You know, there's always this move to try to consolidate and to make it, you know, to, to uh, not have too many different vendors. So I, I get both sides of the equation, but if you really believe strongly that there's a prosthesis that you should be using, then as a surgeon and for your patient, you should do so. And hopefully the company you're working with understands the reality of the financial situation. And if they're, if they're out of the, the, you know, they're way off the, the deep end in the wrong direction, you know what? It, it's going to be hard to justify that in this day and age. What do you like to do when you're not in the operating room or down in the lab? Well, I love spending time with my wife and my two daughters. Uh, I love being on the tennis court. That is my uh, exercise of passion. And growing up, that was what I played. And I, I really hadn't played um, for almost two decades plus. And then this summer, you know, one of the, the best things about the pandemic, unfortunately, so many bad things. But one of the, the good things that's come out of it is that uh, my wife and younger daughter have been uh, basically out in Long Island since March 15th and we found a great tennis club that opened up um once the uh restrictions started coming off and so my daughter and i have been playing a lot of tennis together and i've been playing some competitive tennis for the first time in a couple of decades so that's that's been a, a real real treat 
Dr. Levine, thank you so much for your amazing work in the shoulder and elbow space. You're doing amazing work at Columbia, and uh, I am just so thankful that uh, you came on the show to to share your story with me and my audience. Just uh, amazing work. Kevin, it's been a pleasure. I hope you have a great day, and, and thanks for the invitation. It's real fun. Wow, what an awesome interview. So thankful that Dr. Levine came on the show and shared that stuff with us. Did you catch that part about mentorship and and how he was so thankful at the help that he got that it's something that he is so passionate about now, exactly what we were talking about today. Great stuff. So let's go out this week, and I want everybody to be thankful. Let's all be grateful. Let's be appreciative. And most importantly, let's all be safe. Device Nation.